0: Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the podcast today featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, with a special Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. One meaning of corona is a halo of light, so let's find the silver lining in this outbreak. On Dr. Doctor, we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we have a repeat visitor and guest, uh, Dr. Mark Strand. He's an epidemiologist in the School of Pharmacy and the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University. His teaching and research include the epidemiology of chronic diseases and when crises occur, such as the current COVID-19 pandemic, he applies those skills to following the epidemic and applying what he learns to strengthen public understanding of it. In other words, he's taking knowledge and trying to turn it into wisdom. Mark, thanks for being back with us on Dr. Doctor.
1: Thank you, it's a privilege to be back again.
0: So all about curves. I've been following the curves every day since we last interviewed you two weeks ago today for COVID. So um, what have you seen recently in the curves of the last two weeks that are different or similar to what you expected two weeks ago when we last talked?
1: Um, Two weeks ago, I estimated as many as three to four million cases globally. We're currently at one and a half million. And so I hope we don't get to there, but um, I also predicted a US peak on April 8th. And it now looks like the experts are talking about, hopefully sometime between the 9th and the 16th. So potentially within the next week. So I think perhaps I was um, a little more optimistic about our ability to peak out sooner and obviously then slightly uh, lower. Although there is some indication that April 4th might have been the start of an inflection point. Yes. We've seen three consecutive days. We had 34,000 new cases on April 4th and have seen about 25 to 30,000 per day for the previous three days, which is a slight decline. And um, so that's, that holds out some potential that maybe we're getting close to that.
0: So the 4th could be the peak. We just don't know yet because we're recording this on the 8th.
1: Yeah. So I had uh, predicted I had predicted the 8th if that were to be the case I would be celebrating Tom I would be so happy that we had been able to you know, reduce the or you know reduce the time it had taken to start to rein it in. And
0: how long usually will the peak in deaths follow the peak in
1: cases? Um I don't know about that. I think it might be a week or so, you know, when you think about a new case is going to be, you know, re- relatively early in its progression. And then it seems as if the course follows a week or 10 days. And so uh, I would say not more than a week in, in lag time, although, although that would be, I guess, more critical cases. But those, those who die, I think, are more like 20 days, perhaps. So, yeah, it might be longer. It might be up to two or three weeks after.
0: Okay. So how do these curves compare to the upslope to the peak in other countries? Are we taking longer, shorter, or similar?
1: Longer. So, you know, Italy and Spain seem to be out of the woods, and both of them seem to have been able to follow kind of the 60-day pattern that has been shown in China and Korea. Um, And that would be like 20 days, you know, two weeks to Three weeks up, and then usually it's another additional fifty percent beyond down um It looks like the u s might be on the seventy five day course, um meaning that the the up increase is longer to the peak, the duration, and then unwinding that down to a manageable endemic level of, of new cases will will probably take longer. So I'm thinking maybe 75 days of, so instead of two weeks, two to three weeks up and three to four weeks down, we're talking about three to four weeks up and maybe six weeks down, um, even potentially longer. So it could be even as, as long as 16 weeks total. So um, I still hold to, I think my hope that we would see social distancing Relaxing by the end of May, and um, you know that would be like a seventy-five day course. So I, I think some of some things that I had been reflecting are looking to be hopeful, possible, but again with regional differences.
0: So you think in that seventy-five days would that start when mid March?
1: Yeah, like um, the second week in March. Okay, when
0: different places started instituting social distancing?
1: Correct, which was March 15th, really, in our country. Yep. Okay.
0: And uh, you, you in North Dakota have been social distancing since 1889, right, Mark? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, for 80% of our population, that's true.
0: <laughs> so you,
1: you, you're one of the eight
0: states that still don't have a um, social distancing um, uh, order by your governor, correct?
1: Correct. Okay. And that, you know, I honestly, um, Catholic listeners might appreciate the Catholic social teaching principle of subsidiarity, which has the notion of, you know, pushing decisions down to the lowest level. And, and the state of North Dakota really reflects that. And I think our governor has said several times, people need to be responsible and be North Dakota smart and not be told by the governor what to do. And we'll see whether this holds, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit wishful thinking, perhaps from some perspectives um but it is a a value that he's conveying which is at the end of the day we need to, to see people embrace evidence and and response respond intelligently and wisely in how they protect themselves and their community and so that's kind of his defense whether it's legitimate or not is obviously debatable a lot of states around the country are not happy about that decision in north dakota but that's his rationale
0: well, I know here in Indiana, while our governor has a, a shelter in place order, uh, they're not having any of the police enforce it. Uh, in other words, the governor basically said, we're leaving it to your common sense and goodwill of Hoosiers to do what you North Dakotans are also expected to do.
1: In fact, our, our governor, Burgum, even made the comment that he said he's concerned some states are going to be guilty of lawsuits of co- violating the Constitution after all is said and done. And so he's also somewhat concerned about being able to guard the state from overreach that could result in uh, unanticipated problems.
0: Well, I think you're getting right at the nub of a huge problem. There are so many different what uh, they call stakeholders, I guess, who are looking at the pandemic from different vantage points and trying to decide based on all those vantage points, what's the best time to relax the social distancing and get back to a life that we can truly consider as human? Because, you know, your friend and mine, Paul Carson, I mean, just this morning, we've been emailing back and forth. It's like, well, how much do we do for the benefit of physical life, but for the detriment of what it means to be a human being living in isolation? How how would you approach that as an epidemiologist, Mark?
1: Yeah, that's... uh contention between two competing interests. You know, I think the principle of public health is certainly protecting the vulnerable, but it's also the importance of human flourishing. You know, the Aristotle's eudaimonia and mm-hmm. Jesus Christ's principle of blessed are those who are, you know, blessed are the poor. That pursuit of that blessing, that pursuit of flourishing is is a desperate human need and one that has to be guarded. Um, I think my response would be that we are currently, I would say many, many people in America are currently experiencing what the lower 20% of our population has to live with every day.
0: Ooh, that's a great insight.
1: So we might be feeling as if our flourishing is compromised or what it means to be human is being compromised. I would contend that our many aspects of our system force the lower 20% of our society to feel that sense of being deprived the right to flourish every day by virtue of employment laws, absence of a national health care system, insecurity in, in uh, benefits. Um, know, even housing challenges and feeling under the thumb of of landlords, um, you know, feeling as if generational transition of wealth in this country is is so restricted that there's really no genuine opportunity for that lower uh, quintile of the population. So a part of me also feels like this is an okay lesson for the many of us who are having to suddenly know what it's like to So human flourishing is not necessarily something that everyone's experiencing every day and it's being deprived of everyone. So I am currently compromising elements of what I would consider to be my genuine humane existence in order to guard that 20% whom we know are most at risk of suffering irreparable damage from this epidemic, both in terms of the risk of contracting the disease, the risk of having a disease and not being able to pay ever in their lifetime for the cost of treatment. Um, and so I guess part of me feels as if I'm a part of a community where my current sacrifices is, is in order to guard the elderly smokers, people who've had you know, organ uh, transplants and other individuals who are at highest risk.
0: That That is a beautiful reflection. I've also heard it said that with the economic suppression that can lead to more unemployment and shutdown of businesses, that that will hurt the, um, the poorest among us, even worse in terms of future health outcomes due to things besides COVID. So how do we how do we thread that needle?
1: Yeah, no question. You know, chronic disease <sighs> issues are being neglected. You know, certainly elective surgeries, but you know, cancer treatments are obviously also being compromised, and there's there's no question about that. It's a significant issue. You know, I think back to the economics. A study came out a couple of days ago by Korea um, that reported from the 1918 epidemic that neighboring communities, one who in enforced really strict social distancing mm-hmm. laws and neighbors who, who did not, the economic rebound was twice as fast in those who had enforced social distancing principles. And so I think ah, considering this epidemic from a, you know, certainly we think about things from a national GDP and our national sure. economy, but at the end of the day, economies are also regional and local. And too. Local. And so the point was that the economy, which has had greater restriction, will rebound uh, twice as fast as the the neighboring community. Um, And and the reason is because of confidence in in the consumer spending, but also the freedom of those employees to go back to work in full and not in a compromised state where they're, um, you know, having to, say, cut back on productivity by virtue of still having to have some uh, distancing and and everything. So um, I, I still hold on to a principle that I have had. I listened to, Tim Reichert's interview with you last week. And, and I think I would be a little more, and I don't know economics, so I'm, this is risky perhaps, <laughs> but I, I think I'm still holding out that the economic burden for, say, eight weeks is something that we can rebound from, particularly given the economic stimulus package that's coming out, that that is something that we can rebound from faster and in a more enduring way than the thought of a year long constant anxiety about new emergence of, of pop-up you know, epidemics in states or in regions or communities that creates a, a national malaise and anxiety. So um, I don't have the economic expertise to justify or explain that, but I do have a sense from what I've been reading about that issue that that we still are uh, you know, in a position potentially to see the benefit of that in a shorter term than we might see if we were to drag out um, less restrictive um, social distancing principles, but then also have the economy lag for a long period of time.
0: That's that's a fascinating insight. I love talking to you, Mark. And let's continue <laughs> that. So you said we are taking longer up and down, but is this one reflection that we are flattening the curve instead of having a sharp peak up and down rapidly?
1: Yeah, that I think we we could hope for that, yeah. I think, um, and you've seen that in France and Italy, you know, it isn't as if there's one absolute peak, you'll see gradually, but that is exactly what flattening the curve is. So I think seeing the numbers come out and appear exactly as the theoretical uh, models that were being used initially to justify the social distancing principles, to see that carrying, you know, being carried out is, is important. And I think it should be an encouragement to our society to pat themselves on the back, for honoring these extremely restrictive circumstances, but also take hope that the ones making those decisions have led us in the right direction in terms of what it takes to flatten. And that also gets in, of course, it gets into the issue of how the number of critical patients, the number of ventilators needed, the number of hospital beds needed, those have all been reduced substantially over the last year.
0: Yes, eight. yes. Because on that uh, COVID 19healthdataorg out of the University of Washington, yeah. Uh, uh, their numbers look so high to me and thank god they're turning out to be high aren't they?
1: Um they're turning out to be lower, right? So a week ago Well, I mean,
0: they, well, their predictions were high, yeah. the reality is lower. Yes.
1: Yes. But a, so a week ago they predicted 95,000 deaths, which was the basis for our president's suggestion of 100,000 to 240,000. They're now predicting 60,000 deaths. They had a peak of April 16th and now we're predicting April 11th, which then meant reducing the number of beds needed by uh, 260,000 needed to less than 100,000 beds needed. So that has created a certain you know, it's managed the surge capacity. So to me, that is evidence of the social distancing principles have indeed flattened the curve, which has led to reducing the overall social disease burden and also then the medical surge demand. With all due respects to New York, New Jersey, who's been crushed by this, to be sure. But on a nationwide scale, we're definitely seeing uh, that being improved upon.
0: And is the New York City and New Jersey problem a function of being the most densely populated region of the country?
1: That's part of it. You know, I think that's part of it. I think they also got hit, you know, hit early. They they were slower than California to take action. I think California began to put in, you know, uh, in place. Uh, they did. Social restrictions distancing. About a yes. week earlier and social distancing um, to the point that where we thought California, of course, Asia, everybody lands in San yes. Francisco or L.A., kudos to California, right? They're now ready to give 500 ventilators back to the federal government because of how they've been able to flatten things out in terms of the growth. So I'm really proud of, of that.
0: Do you think that there are any particular ways in which the public lacks understanding they need to have now? Or do you think that the message has gotten out well to the majority of Americans and what we need to do and why?
1: I do. I've been impressed at the overall react response of the American people to the to the messaging, to the extent to which people are wanting to get, you know, good science and evidence. Uh, however, I think there is going to be a growing restiveness from some sectors, I think, regarding maybe certain conspiracies, you know, about the origin of the virus, which yes. um, Francis Collins, director of the NIH, has has uh, completely debunked. Um, and then I think, of course, there's also a, you know going to be a sur- surge of alternative therapy ideas, which may or may not be helpful. I heard that somebody suggested tonic water, which has a little bit of quinine in it. <laughs> is shared. So the tonic water is somehow now therapeutic, right? Especially
0: um, with zinc lozenges, right?
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, so I don't want to challenge people's choices with alternative treatments, but I don't think now is the time to promote when we're not even able to determine whether, whether chloroquine is going to prove to be a, an effective treatment, I don't think we want to be following fads and trends. And so uh, I still think there is some concern that the public might, you know, need to, um, you know, not be grasping at straws or miracle cures, but to know that this is a grind. I think another thing the audience should be aware of is, um, although we are waiting and hoping on a record-setting pace of producing an effective vaccine. It's important to know that that's not a magic bullet either. I mean, look at our, we know seasonal influenza, that's an enemy we know really well. And yet what's the efficacy of our annual flu vaccine? 50%?
0: Now, isn't a major part of that the fact that it mutates so fast and right now SARS-CoV-2 appears to not mutate anywhere near as quickly?
1: That is, a, that is a part of it, but I just wanna make sure people understand it isn't as if we'll have a vaccine that's going to be a absolute foolproof, you know, as much as right. say the measles vaccine is. Um, and so uh, we wanna be circumspect in the degree to which we demand that our medical system is able to come up with foolproof solutions overnight. Uh, this is gonna be a year and a year and a half of, of, uh, of work.
0: Why does the United States far and away have the greatest number of cases in the world?
1: Um, well, we we neglected to take it seriously starting on January 21st when we had our first case. Um, I would say it wasn't until March 15th that we actually acknowledged that this was a problem. I would also argue that we were kind of had the bad luck of the initial first month was a very slow increase in cases and so i think we and it was actually much slower than what we've seen in italy and spain and and in china so the 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 rate of increase was rather gradual initially which i think contributed to our self sort Ah, of delusion okay and it wasn't until honestly march 15th that our rate of growth actually then began to exceed Italy and Spain and France and put us on, and at which point we were too far in to be able to then turn that around. Whereas in Italy, they had a more rapid initial surge so that they were able to really uh, put in place controls in the Lombardy region, which is where the outbreak was most yes. severe. And then because of that, they were able to be even more restrictive in the Veneto region, which is neighboring them. And they were then able to see like five times fewer cases in two regions that are next to each other by virtue of those restrictions. Whereas in the US, we didn't take that seriously until uh, six weeks later, at which point there had been this growing epidemic that was in our midst and we just didn't re- you know, realize it
0: we uh i read a quote from new york city that there are some people dying at home where they're not even able to get tested for covid for sars cov2 and that the number of deaths may actually be higher i guess the question that's best to ask right now is how important is the number of cases that we've tested versus the number of deaths in other words isn't the number of cases dependent on how many are being tested? Whereas the number of deaths, that's a pretty solid thing that you really can't argue with the numbers.
1: Yeah, for sure. So if you think about the number of tests done, you know, again, the U.S., we, we fumbled that at the beginning. So we've been running from behind. But if you think about Korea as an example, they were very aggressive in testing. They were able to test 90 people out of every 10,000 the US even as of now has only tested 52 people out of every 10,000 and the result of that is because of Korea's aggressive testing they only had 2% of all tests positive. Wow. Because they were able to do true surveillance so that that also gives me a little pause regarding the thought that only 1 in 10 cases are being reported. You know, the, Korea is a good case study of really aggressive testing And yet they only found 2%. Now, North Dakota has also been very aggressive. We're in a top 10 in terms of, you know, we've had 89. We're almost as high as Korea in terms of number tested per 10,000 people. And we too have only had a 3% test positive rate. So to me, that gives me concern. Now, granted, we haven't had antibody testing and we haven't been able to do wide surveillance. We really don't know the proportion of individuals who are, who are out there that were, you know, asymptomatic or mild. And so, but the prospect of that being so high that only, you know, one in, case, one in 10 cases are tested and reported. In other words, that we're missing 90% of the cases. Um, I think that that's very unlikely. Given the rigor of a setting like Korea and the numbers coming out of, of Italy, um, so so that
0: was a quote from Texas on the Worldometer site that uh, one of the public health people there thought only one in ten cases was reported. So you have kind of debunked that. So something else you just reminded me of: your 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 friend and colleague Paul Carson told me it would be good as far as developing herd immunity if there was a large number of people that were asymptomatic who had had it, but it appears that that is not the case.
1: Yeah, if that were the case, that would be good news, that it would be suggested herd immunity is on the way. Um, and we're not gonna know that until we have an antibody test And, you know, maybe for the listeners, I'm not sure if they're aware, but currently we just do PCR testing, looking for the presence of RNA in the person's nasal passages, which proves that they're shedding virus. So you're missing a lot of individuals because you have to be, if you're too early on, they're not yet shedding virus, you'll miss them. If they're already recovered, then they're not shedding virus. So the foolproof method is an antibody test which would catch anybody who's been exposed you know almost within hours they're going to be generating antibodies to the virus and if we could test those if we could do that and that is coming out this week i heard on a podcast from francis collins we're very hopeful to see that coming out very soon Um, and so then we would have a better understanding of the true prevalence in the society we would have a better ability to test healthcare workers and then send them back to work confidently that they have not been exposed um, and it would really be critical for restarting our economy and that we could if we had the production capacity we could test teachers and schools and then you know some way begin to resume uh, education even not necessarily this school year but you know down the road so that's a really important pharmacological development that that we need to see
0: do you think in the fall we will be able to resume high school and colleges and elementary schools like normal?
1: Boy, I sure hope so. Um, I do think so. I do think so. I, I know the city of Wuhan, which, you know, is sort of the Wuhan model of really draconian measures on April 8th, as they predicted two weeks earlier, they've opened up their, their society and like 93% of people are back at work and um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a good sign, and, and that's not resulting in, in new outbreaks, but it's just a low-level grinding spread of cases across society at a manageable level.
0: How long were they shut down?
1: Um, from January 23rd until March 25th. So that's uh, 60 days Okay. And then on March 25th, they began issuing healthy cards to individuals who were then allowed to go out in public to, because they had been verified as not being sick. And then another two weeks later, they've now opened up transportation, in and out public transportation. So, you know, that's, um, that's where I come up with that 60-day rule. That, Got it. And, uh, and I think in the U.S., I'm now talking 75, maybe longer, potentially, uh, approach
0: and that would be to continue to limit gatherings of people to 10 right till yeah. the end of may wow yes we we americans at least this american <laughs> tends to be impatient about you know <laughs> wanting to get back to normal life but it, it's also good to have uh, an idea and if it's shorter than that we'll we'll celebrate even more
1: by the way, I'd like to just uh, in terms of the, you know, the nationwide outbreak in the U.S., I, I would like to add, you know, one other uh, just reflection. You yes. know, the U.S. has been able to kind of achieve something that China achieved in, to some extent. You know, China had 80 percent of the cases restricted to one province. Yes. As of now, the U.S. has 53 has percent of our cases restricted to one province what would be comparable to the province of Wuhan. If you think about New York, New Jersey, um, Pennsylvania. Yes. That comprises 50% of our cases. Interesting. And we've been able to keep the rest of the country from experiencing that similar surge by very strict enforcement of social distancing so that we have, you know, Florida, Louisiana, California, Illinois, they've got 10, 12, 15,000 cases, but they aren't spiking in a, doubling every day or two. Um, and then of course the Midwest has also been spared that. And that's what we saw in China and that's what we saw in Italy, limiting it to Lombardy. So I think it is important for listeners to be aware, although we're often talking about a, as a country, the extent of the, the epidemic. and But in fact, we will quickly start moving toward assessment, measurement and in, in relaxing of social distancing on regional bases. That would be states potentially. Um, and we, we saw that in China. So that's, that's a, a good, you know, prospect for us. So some of us
0: in the country will have relaxation sooner than other areas. Absolutely. That how, so let's say there is a seasonal peak again that comes this fall with the weather turning colder. How will we be better prepared as a nation to handle that?
1: Our public health workforce will be on high alert, so there will be a mechanism in place for reporting. Our clinical systems will take any fever, dry cough symptoms as a susceptible coronavirus case, and so it'll be immediately treated as a a serious uh, possibility. Uh, We'll be able to then aggressively do contact tracing, And screening of individuals that they've had contact with. So, yes, there will be some pop-ups, clusters in, in, in the fall. But we'll be so much better prepared. And in some ways, what we're suggesting is that's the level of preparedness we needed to have back in January. Yes. And we did not do that. And so, you know, we can't turn back time, but we certainly can learn from our current experiences. And so that's where I feel like we can have some resumption of normalcy because of confidence that we can manage pop-ups of a few hundred even cases in a given area, which then mean restrictions on a local level. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the entire country has to undergo the same level of restriction.
0: Do you think that government authorities are learning that from the people who are experts i mean i I feel sorry for them because you know each of us are experts in our little area they 're experts in none of these medical areas
1: yeah i I do you know i think politicians um, you know they understand that they need to to turn to their experts and and you hope they do that without you know political considerations and I've seen a tremendous amount of humility and compassion in our government officials. You know, I, our governor is a very emotional, very empathetic person. And his, his daily press conference, you know, he, he comes to tears almost every day because of something that he's reporting that just moves him. And, and this is a kind of transparency and humility, both in the face of caring for their people, but also respecting the advice they're getting from scientists uh, that we don't often necessarily see in our political system. So I, I do recognize that uh, challenge they're under and I'm seeing a lot of good signs along those lines, particularly at the state level where there's, you know, more familiarity, but but even at the national level, there's been a really change, a change of attitude, I think, since the middle of early March.
0: And speaking of the states being different, you know, I just did a quick search yesterday. I found out that there are various lengths of shelter in place laws in different states right now, from Alaska on April 11th and Georgia till April 13th to Colorado on April 26th, here in Indiana till May 5th, and then Virginia all the way out to June 10th. Why do you think there's such the wide array of dates at this point?
1: You know, it's educated guesses. I think it's copycatting from neighboring states. Um, You know, I think the epidemiologists would do what we've been doing on this call in that you would track the course of this particular virus in human populations in other settings. And you would use that as as an estimator of the rate of transmission, the reproductive number and factors that Help to consider the uh, the rate of spread, <clears throat> and then use that to give yourselves an estimation of when you might peak out. And honestly, I think we've been pretty good with that, you know, globally in being able to predict those. And so that would be informing their shelter-in-place, you know, rules. I think there's also some reluctance to put it out there so far out that people are just so devastated that they just say well forget it i can't do that so i would anticipate some of these states would you know up their their orders again, another Probably. week or two and in, in beyond that. So um, yeah, it's an educated guess based <laughs> on geographic location and proximity to the outbreak.
0: Similar to when we're about to take an airplane flight and they say, oh, it's been delayed 20 minutes. And then it's been delayed another 20 <laughs> minutes. And then another 15. They don't like, give you the two hours all at once.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yep, totally.
0: <laughs> so Mark, what would you personally want to see before you would be comfortable going out to eat at a restaurant again?
1: <clears throat> so the, we're at least halfway down the decline in new cases of the epicurve. curve, so confirmation that we've peaked out and we're in decline, that would be critical. Um, you know, from a personal basis, I would say um, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about this in terms of like when I would be willing to, to, to go out. Because honestly, I would be willing to go out and eat in a restaurant right now.
0: Uh-huh. And the
1: reason is because I have such confidence in the degree to which we understand the mechanism of transmission. Mm-hmm. So I keep my hands off my face. If I'm touching surfaces, I wash or disinfect my hands afterwards. Um, so I don't mean to sound as if I'm, uh, you know, above the virus or somehow better or smarter. (laughs) Um, But I do think that, you know, there's lots of reason to feel confident that we can provide ourselves a lot of self-protection with this particular virus. So I guess my feeling would be that I would not be intimidated to do it now. But if I was making decisions as the mayor, for example, you know, like when, when should we be having restaurants reopened? Um, I think that would be an experiment where you'd you'd start by saying table spacing still has to be limited to, you know, limited number at a table and only half the tables. And, you know, so there would be a gradual increase in, in allowing, and then the weather allowing perhaps those restaurants that can have it start by saying outdoor eating only, you know I mean? Ah. So it would be a a trial and error, shall we say? Um, I would say, you know, Workers in the restaurant, if they could be tested, would be ideal, although that's unlikely given the current scenario. But, you know, rigid screening of those workers regarding your clinical symptoms that are known yes. you know, to make sure that no health, none of the employees are at any risk of bringing that in. Those are some of the things that I would be thinking about if I was the mayor or the county health department.
0: A very practical question for for my colleagues and me across the country uh, in medicine who have limited our practices to what is considered just urgent and emergent visits, what would you want to see before we could have the majority of our patients come in for their various health maintenance or other non-urgent but new needs?
1: Well, as I mentioned, antibody testing. Test your surgical you know, staff, test the patient, and they're good. Go in there and do your knee replacement you know, go in there and remove that, that growth that you have on your, that patient back of their neck. Uh, That would be the ideal antibody testing. Um, You know, I think having um, seen that the hospital can handle um, screening individuals, um, no evidence of Nosocomial transmission in that setting, you know, mm-hmm. would be important or nosocomial
0: for our uh, audience means
1: so transmission from patients to healthcare workers or healthcare workers back to patients. Because we've actually seen healthcare workers in our area here who tested positive and no, no no sense that it was, it was community born. So they were bringing it to their patients actually. And that's most unfortunate, Ooh, but you know, yes. you know, the, just think of the burden on those individuals who had, had to you know live with that. Now, we don't have evidence that they transmitted it to any of their patients. At least I don't have that information. But even the prospect of that, of course, is, is very burdensome to to bear. So, um, you know, I would say, you know, no evidence of nosocomial transmission. and um, And then, you know, moving forward now, there are still elective surgeries being done here in Fargo by one of our healthcare systems. Um, and they've been, they've been defending the need for that based on, sure. on, um, on patient demand and, and that it's, it's uh, something that's in the best interest of their patients. And so there, there is evidence of that out there too.
0: And that makes sense to me because if you're not overwhelming your ICU and you have plenty of ventilators available, it, it makes sense to yeah. not let those rooms sit empty and take care of patients who need it. One other medical topic I want to come to, and this was suggested by my co-host uh, Andrew Mullally last night, and that's QALYs, Quality Adjusted Life Years. Can you explain to our audience what QALYs are and how they're used typically in medicine?
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> a QALY is a unit of measure to demonstrate the amount of good that can be achieved in a population, by the delivery of some type of medical intervention, so the quality is, is a value that's calculated by the burdensomeness of the disease, which is called a disability weighting, the duration of disease, the prevalence of disease in the population, and then the years of life lost with that disease, and that then determines. Um, if that disease that we're referring to can then be treated, cured, what uh, that will do to contribute that number of qualities back to the population. And one of the ways that it's often used is to basically ask the question, how much money do we have to spend to achieve one quality? So for example, with like a flu vaccine, the calculation is that uh, we can achieve one quality or that unit of improved health in the population by spending $3,690 for uh, flu vaccines, and so that's considered a real cheap uh, buy for a quality. In fact, up to even $25,000 per quality is considered to be uh, a reasonable buy. So, the the application of qualities to to COVID would be. At this point, we would have to consider what does it cost to treat, and this is in mass, so all the patients who have had COVID, from everybody who's had just a you know a clinical outpatient visit to those who have been hospitalized to those who have been in the ICU, you know, and that's going to vary anywhere from ten thousand dollars at the low end to seventy-five thousand dollars at the high end, and then so you'd have to have a unit to say what is it now costing to achieve one quality uh, for these patients. And then the cost includes, you know, your hospital expenses, the lost, you know, indirect costs, like lost work opportunities. So it includes everything. Um, So I think in some ways, the quality calculations will have to wait until we have the data to be able to determine what it has cost to treat, say, um, 440,000 COVID patients like we've had in the US as of now. Um, it does come into, you know, the over economic, overall economic impact does come into play from the perspective of lost productivity and time away from work, but it wouldn't necessarily incorporate things like the degree to which a state's overall GDP was compromised by people not going to work. You know, it would be really difficult to fold that into one calculation that asks something like, The cost per quality of treating COVID patients. So that's a hopefully a relatively generalized explanation of how qualities apply. Um, And um, I think right now it would be quite expensive if we were to do the calculations. This is extremely both qualities per patient cared for, but then also the burden on society. And it'll be interesting to see what economists report to us after the fact. It's it's going to be. Substantial. Uh,
0: On the flip side of this, I think it's fascinating and somewhat heartwarming to think that those people that we are most protecting are the elderly and those with the worst health. And yet, those are often the patients that are being targeted with, you know, physician assisted suicide or euthanasia. Mm -hmm. But here we are protecting them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a good thing so that, you know, when we get away from that that argument for you know ending patients lives uh we really do believe as a people that it is worth saving those people
1: mm. maybe that's one of the silver linings is a reminder to our society that the inconvenience we're now experiencing is is in in exchange for saved lives yes and uh the value of those lives um being more fully appreciated.
0: So Mark, as a last question, you know, at the end of the last interview, we, we did some um, reflection. So what new insights have you gleaned in the last two weeks related to the COVID uh, pandemic now actually seeming to peak during Holy Week?
1: Hmm. Today is Passover. Passover is a reminder of, of God's mercy. And um, the people of Israel being spared punishment was an act of God's mercy, and our Lord paying on the you know paying the ultimate price on the cross for us is an act of mercy. And um, the connection to COVID is probably not direct, but I think as as people of faith, it is a reminder that that our lives, the health that we enjoy is also uh, an extension of, of God's mercy. You know, I sort of feel like maybe not for all the right reasons, but coronavirus (laughs) has created a long Lent.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: You've heard it. I'm sure you've heard the, the joke out there. I didn't expect to give up this much for Lent. Yes.
0: Yes, indeed. We've used it on the show.
1: Yes. You know, um, So perhaps it's been an imposition for good purposes to remind us of, of what is truly substantive in life and what is of, of greatest value. And uh, maybe it's imposed, but maybe it's also revelatory in its own way. I think um, the, the last thing that has struck me is, is um, in Second Corinthians 8 and verse 9. The work of our Lord Jesus Christ for us is summarized in this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. I think most of us feel some degree of poverty during this COVID epidemic. And it's an opportunity to recognize that Christ had you know, claim no equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of human flesh and becoming a servant. And so to me, it's a, it's a very stark reminder of, of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and that we truly are through that able to, we who are truly poor, able to then by virtue of his poverty become rich. The old exchange, that great theological exchange And so in some ways, the COVID epidemic has made us all aware of of many aspects of our poverty as humans, our limited uh, ability to control even our own health and well-being in the face of this virus. But that ultimately, on a theological perspective, we're able to still be rich.
0: Mark, I love your medical and your non-medical reflections. I especially like the one earlier, of how you said we are kind of experiencing now what maybe the the poorest 20% regularly experiences. That is a, a very good thing for me to reflect on. And hopefully you can come back again maybe in another two weeks and we can talk about curves again.
1: Let's do that. Let's see this thing through to the end. And I, I hope your listeners are, are being encouraged and being edified by your great work, Tom. I'm just so impressed at what you're doing and the integration of of faith and reason, the integration of hope with evidence is in a paucity, I think, and we are so benefiting from your work on this show and making a small contribution is a privilege. So I hope your readers are feeling that that hopefulness and the power that comes from a combination of hope and evidence.
0: Thank you. God bless you, Mark. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another podcast of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. If you find something helpful, please share it with a friend. This is Dr. Tom McGovern signing off until your next dose
1: of Dr. Doctor. Support each other so significantly and intellectually.
0: Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598, or visit Redeemaradio.com slash doctor. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values, Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.